Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, host of the Better Off Podcast. On this episode, Ron Lieber, the New York Times Your Money columnist. We want to train readers, listeners, the general public. Any time they go in to have a conversation with anyone about anything related to their financial well-being, that the very first question out of their mouth is, are you acting in my best interest here? Do you agree to serve as a fiduciary? And if the answer is no, or if the answer is hemming or hawing, or if the answer is longer than one word, then you take a walk. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast. We're sponsored by Betterment, the largest online financial advisor. Today, we've got a great guest. He is Ron Lieber, the New York Times Your Money columnist and the author of The Opposite of Spoiled, A Guide to Teaching Kids About Money. He's also writing a new book called What to Pay for College. I can't wait till we get that one. This is a wide-ranging interview with one of my must-read columnists, by the way. I think that he and Jason Zweig are kind of my two go-to columnists who write on an ongoing basis. And we go everywhere from Equifax to Wells Fargo to student loan servicing. So many changes that actually have occurred since we recorded this interview. But stay tuned. This is going to be fun. Ron Lieber here on the Better Off Podcast. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Ron Lieber, the Your Money columnist for The New York Times, author of The Opposite of Spoiled, A Guide to Teaching Kids About Money, and the forthcoming What to Pay for College. Welcome to Better Off. How are you? I am great. Thank you for having me. So, you know, I'm such a nerd that I had to figure out a way to start every single interview with a funny question. Shoot. Here's your question. What's the best financial or career decision you ever made? The best financial and career decision I ever made was to start reading the Wall Street Journal every day. Stop it. Uh, True. Now, this is back in 1993. I've got my first job out of college. I'm working for a startup legal newspaper. The journal back then wrote a lot about emerging case law, which is what I was covering. And so my boss sort of shoved it in front of my nose every single day. And I came to realize that as good as the legal coverage was, uh, the stuff that they were writing on the front page back then, the so-called leaders in Wall Street Journal parlance, were some of the most incredible reporting that existed at the time or has ever existed in the universe as far as I am concerned. And I fell madly in love with the paper and eventually got to work there. And that's exciting. So, um, and by the way, that subscription was expensive. So, I mean, I hope your boss paid for it back they, then. We had a, a house subscription back there at Lawyers Weekly USA in downtown Boston. So what's your what's your background? Like you come from a journalism education or did you, how did you get into this? I come from a liberal arts background. Uh, I was an American studies major, interdisciplinary at Amherst College. Uh, the best that I can say for my uh, so-called financial training was the C plus I got in Economics 11. I have never worked so hard at something and done so miserably. I think maybe part of the reason I grew up to be reasonably good at personal finance was that I had a lot of trouble myself back in the day understanding some core concepts of economics. And one of the things that I take seriously is my obligation to explain things in simple terms, in plain English, uh, but not in a way that is dumbed down. And that is what I love about you. It's why I feel like we are kindred spirits. I Consider me your much older cousin. I doubt you're that uh, much older. A little bit older. Um, because I do love that. I love your column. When I initially started stalking slash contacting you, it was um, in the midst of the Equifax 
craziness and you were so on top of that story. I wonder if we could just kind of roll back a little bit, not just to last year, but in your mind as you start writing the the Your Money column, that's a huge story. You have to cover it. How do you decide what to write about? Are you are you taking input from your readers or is it just what you find interesting or the screw ups in your own financial life? What, how do you pick your 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 topics? It was actually completely insane what happened behind the scenes there. So let me take you back years, right? Because we personal finance geeks had actually been preparing for this moment mentally for a long time. We figured that there was a pretty good chance that one day the big one was going to happen, right? There was going to be a breach at one of the big three credit bureaus. So we knew that that was going to be a moment. We weren't sure when it was going to happen or how, but we figured it was coming. So flash forward to that day in September. I've just given a speech in Chicago. I've got to fly down to Florida on one of the very last flights going down there to evacuate my father out of the hurricane's path because he's handicapped uh, and in a wheelchair, right? So my flight cancels. And then five minutes later, as I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to get from Chicago to Orlando, the Equifax story breaks. And our four best reporters are scattered in four different places, including one outside of the United States. And the editor is in a fifth place. And we've got a figure out and confirm that this is the big one very quickly and then put together a front page 2500 word story in the space of 90 minutes. Oh, my God. (laughs) So that's how it started. (laughs) Um, So we managed to get that done. I go out for a run along the Chicago River. I go out with my friends uh, from back home in Chicago where I grew up. Next morning, I'm up at 4 a.m., managed to catch a 6 a.m. down to Orlando. I'm on the flight. I start reading everybody else's coverage, and it's clear to me that this is really even bigger than we thought, right? Mm -hmm. And I've got to give people a much better sense of what they ought to do. Uh, So, you know, from minute 42 until we hit the ground in Orlando, I'm frantically writing a column, right? Just giving people the basics on credit freeze is why that's always been an appropriate defense mechanism, why it's a particularly good idea now. Uh, and so we get that story up you know, by the end of the morning. Uh, but then what starts to happen, what becomes clear very quickly, is that Equifax's systems from the credit freezes to the efforts that they had made to give consumers some ability to see if they had been affected, all of those systems are melting down completely. They were subpar in the first place, and the their servers, their websites, um, their phone banks cannot handle the load, and everybody is freaking out. And so who is watching out that this does not happen again? Good things in the world of consumer protection in general start with the states. Um, and and not with the federal government. In general, it hasn't always been the case, especially with the last couple of years under the CFPB, but usually stuff starts trickling out of the West Coast, um, the state legislatures out there, which tend to be more more liberal, more democratic, um, and they sort of spread over the country. Um, Think about credit freezes, right? Credit freezes would not have existed were it not for a couple of state legislatures that sort of got the ball rolling. And then over the course of a decade, they spread spread slowly but surely despite intense fighting in all of these state capitals uh, by lobbyists for the credit bureau. You know, state by state, uh, the ability to put a freeze on your credit became a reality such that the big three credit bureaus eventually had to just offer it up to everybody because otherwise it was going to be too much of an administrative hassle. So if we expect some relief in the wake of this particular breach, it's probably going to come from the states. And the question is, what might that be, right? So um, maybe credit freezes should be free everywhere 
for everyone all the time, which they are not now. Uh, maybe the default should be that your credit is always frozen. That's how I want it to be. I right? keep saying to every single advocate, like, we need to agitate that you start at birth, you get a social security number, and immediately your credit is frozen. If you wish to actually get credit, you must unfreeze it, which is also building more responsibility around the process of assuming debt anyway. I like that responsibility angle, right? This is something um, that you have to take an active role in managing, whether you like it or not. It's part of being a responsible financial grown-up. So could a state... Uh, attempt to pass legislation and succeed in doing so without violating some federal law or regulation somewhere along the way that forces the credit bureaus to lock everybody's credit all at once for residents of that state, it would be really interesting to watch somebody try. I, hope I would happens. love that. I would think we could just do it easily like on a state income tax return. That could be a place to start. Okay, I want to talk about another uh, story, and you wrote a great um, column about this. Am I dating myself by saying column? Because I know that online, you people are your very robust presence that you have. But I will tell you, the Wells Fargo fiasco of last year, I mean, it was really stunning, right? That, you know, you just have this culture that was allowed to fester where people are just opening up crappy, phony stuff in the customer's name to hit quotas. And... We know that Janet Yellen's sort of swan song on the last day before she left was this huge smackdown to Wells Fargo, which essentially says, hey, Wells, you are so bad. Your board was so bad. Your senior management's so bad that we're not going to allow you to grow, essentially. That's what they're saying. And you took it one step beyond that because you said, what happens if you don't want it? You want to, like, break up with Wells Fargo. And you you did it from the mortgage side, Right. Talk about that experience. Sure. So, uh, you know, my take uh, on the news is always the same or my framing is always the same. What does it mean and what should you do, right, for consumers? So, uh, you know, I, I find or I found Yellen's move interesting from a sort of, you know, corporate uh, management, um, uh, you know, perspective from a regulatory perspective. But all I'm trying to do is figure out, you know, what what does this mean and, and what should you do or, or what might the company do that will impact consumers directly? So about a year ago when this first started, uh, I tried to take a clear eyed view of what was happening. And in the back of my mind was this notion that you know, why on earth would anybody keep doing business with this bank? Uh, but then I tried to think about what I would do if I was, you know, one of the good people at the bank. And there are doubtless, you know, thousands of good people who are aghast at what has gone on there, right? And the simplest thing that they could do right now is just offer better deals. You know, their products are so middling. There is absolutely not a shred of generosity in any of Wells Fargo's products across the board. Its credit card rewards are average. Its saving account rates are abysmal. You know, there is nothing really unique or innovative or certainly generous about that place. So I wrote that a year ago. Sank like a stone. Wells Fargo clearly wasn't listening or didn't care. They remain middling, right? So anyway, there continues to be this drip, drip, drip of bad news out of them. And, you know, finally, when I saw Gretchen Morganson's work about how they were forcing some people to opt in to some of the, you know, things that they were trying to do to fix their problems, I was like, enough. Um, and I wanted out of my relationship with the bank uh, because they are my mortgage servicer. And it turns out you can't do that. <laughs> 
<laughs> Even if you want to. I want to Even break up with you. You can't. To. Yeah. The only thing that I could do was refinance. And that takes time and it costs money uh, in this particular instance. Uh, you know, if you've got a higher interest rate than I happen to uh, right now, maybe it'll be different for you. Um, but there seemed to be no way out of this. And so I have to continue to push a four figure amount of money to these people each month. And, you know, they cheated millions of Americans. And I have to be stuck with them. How? How does that make any sense at all? I know. And I love the idea that like, well, why don't you just do something to enhance your customer experience? I mean, really, that to me is like a really easy thing to do. I mean, first of all, fire your whole board and get new directors. I always hear this from the in-house attorneys and the uh, the outside firms, which is they're never going to do anything like that because they're not going to admit liability. I'm like, well, no one's going to sue you if you actually do the right thing. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe someone will. But like, if you do the right thing, then why why am I suing you? Well, I mean, the other question I'd ask, right, in light of that is what, what do they have to lose? Because they're already being um, investigated and sued up the wazoo a, a million different ways, right? So I didn't think of this until I was here talking with you. I should have called you before I wrote the column, right? But I should have really put the two thoughts together. What Wells should be doing for people like me and every single person who's forced to do business with them through a mortgage servicing relationship is cut the rate. Right? Oh, that would be sweet. Yeah, like, take, you know my, take my four and a quarter, 4.25%, and turn it into 4.20 as a matter of goodwill. Right. Five, Save me a couple bips. bucks each month. Give right? me five bips yeah. right off the top. That would be great. I have a three and a quarter percent Wells Fargo mortgage, I have to tell you. On a, so, on a 30? Yeah. So I just, wow. but you know, again, let me just say, not because I'm so smart, it just happened. Like I was going to refinance. I try, I didn't try to get it. I just was like, oh, it's time to do this. And I got lucky. Let's move on. Who cares about us? Let us talk about one of my very favorite topics, which is fiduciary standard and the thwarted effort by the Department of Labor to create a fiduciary standard where the best interest of a retirement investor must come first. Were you surprised by the the intensity of the pushback on fiduciary? No, I wasn't surprised at all. This has been going on for however long, you know, nearly a decade or maybe more at this point. And the fact of the matter is, is that there are whole lines of business in the financial services industry that would not exist but for the ability to defy being a fiduciary. Um, I mean, consider variable annuities, right? Let's. Yeah. There are, there are some people for whom those products may be appropriate under certain circumstances. What percentage of the total number of variable annuities sold do you think fall into that category of, I always make the exact same disclaimer, I hate these things, but there may be, there is a limited use case. What percentage would you say of total variable annuity sales are actually like, hey, that was a smart idea? Well, I guess there's sort of a, a quantitative and a qualitative answer to that question, right? Because if you look at somebody in a variable annuity and, and look back historically over, you know, say 30 years that they're in the product, and then you compare how they would have done if they had taken that money and just put it in a couple of index funds, right? Um, way more often than not, they will have done better numerically having been in the index funds. But... Some people like whatever certainty or guarantee or or unbreakable promise or anxiety-reducing component that might come from a product that feels more certain or guaranteed than being in the stock market, right? So you can't necessarily put a price on 
feeling secure and being able to, to sleep at night, even if it does cost you money. For some people, that's worth it. So, oh, but let me, uh, so, so, so me, I can't, so I'm not sure I can answer that question. Okay, so I'm going to answer it with you. Let's mm. let's build it out that way. Let's say that, yeah, there there was a cost, but maybe the people didn't understand just how high a cost that was. True. Because I think that the bigger issue is that, of course, people pay for insurance all the time. Like, I pay a company to assume risk for me. I think the problem that I have with the product itself is that, it is rarely quantified to the client in a way that makes sense. My fear is that people get a sense of false sense of security. They think they have something that's safer than it is, and it's not, and they don't really understand the cost of it. And they bail out of the contract anyway before all the surrender charges are up. So my back-of-the-envelope calculation on this, made up out of my tush, is that I think that there's probably 5% of people who really needed a variable annuity because it was the very best option they had. I think there's probably another 5%. You're right. They want that extra level of security. But I think the vast majority are actually sold something they don't need. And if truth be told, if you had to put the, the choices down, and because I think sometimes people don't understand what their choices are. Hey, you know what? Your choice is not 100% in stocks or this variable annuity. It's a balanced portfolio, and this is what it would cost. Here's what I hope, um, and, and you know, and the reason we spent a, a lot of time in 2016 and 2017 in the New York Times, mostly Tara Siegel Bernard, my my colleague there, hammering away on these fiduciary stories, is that we want to train readers, listeners, the general public. Uh, any time they go in to have a conversation with anyone about anything related to their financial well-being, that the very first question out of their mouth with the, that stranger or the person who's trying to sell them something is, are you acting in my best interest here? Do you agree to serve as a fiduciary? And if the answer is no, or if the answer is hemming or hawing, or if the answer is longer than one word, then you take a walk. I love right? that. And then we have our own personal fiduciary standards, and we don't need to worry about what the government does, right? Because, yeah. you know, the thing that's so baffling about this, right, um, and that I've never been able to get a good answer to when I ask the folks in insurance, um, you know, who are fighting against this, why would anyone want to make a living where you're refusing to act in people's best interests and refusing to, to declare that? Who, who, who wants that? I know. I can't believe it. Uh, so I was asked to moderate a panel of consumers on behalf of the Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards and AARP. And we um, were submitting this video to the Department of Labor as evidence that basically people have no idea what the fiduciary is and whether or not their their current advisor is held to the standard or not. It was wild because in the midst of this conversation, what I came to find out was that, you know, one person maybe out of the six or eight people there knew kind of what fiduciary was and as a result just managed his money on his own. And everyone else thought that someone was giving the best advice. One guy said, well, buyer beware. You know, you walk into a car dealership, you don't you walk into a Toyota dealership, they're not going to sell you a Honda. I said, OK. Point taken. But you can go into every single one of those dealerships. You're walking into a professional. You go to a doctor. Do you think that doctor's giving you the advice that's in your best interest? Or the one where he or she, it's like, it's good enough for you, but not the best for you. And he or she's going to make money on that advice. And it was really hard for consumers to call into question the advice they'd been getting from people they'd worked with for a long time. They felt really bad about that. And we got to break through it. It's hard. It's really hard. But it's important. 
This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. We'll get back to our interview with Ron Lieber in just a moment. And, you know, what a great segue because we're talking about fiduciary. And you know who is a fiduciary? Our sponsor, Betterment. As a fiduciary, Betterment makes recommendations that are in the client's best interest. It's kind of cool, right? They're not incentivized to recommend certain funds. By the way, they don't even have their own investment products to sell. Not only that. Betterment has low fees. Hidden costs are nowhere to be found, no matter who you are or how much money you invest. At Betterment, you get everything for one low, transparent management fee. Better Off listeners can get up to one year managed free. For more information, visit Betterment.com slash Better Off. That's Betterment.com slash Better Off. And now back to our interview with New York Times columnist, Ron Lieber. Let's talk about your other passion project, which is What to Pay for College, which is a book that you're writing. Let's talk a little. We get questions all the time. In fact, right before you came here, we had a caller who had $100,000 of student loan debt. And I just had pulled up a Brookings paper about the amount of debt that these jumbo um, loans. It was sort of crazy. Basically, it had gone from like these jumbo loans, more than $50,000 of debt went from 2% of these loans to 17% of these loans within, let's call it 20 years-ish. So let me start by saying that I'm a little bit less worried about the size of the debt per person than I was five to 10 years ago. Um, there are also jumbo loans that are being taken out by parents. I worry about those people. Often they are taking those loans out when they are 48, 54, 58. Uh, Maybe their retirement savings are themselves not up to snuff, and yet they are going to be sacrificing contributions to their retirement savings and their retirement livelihoods over the decades after they take these parent loans out. Um, So I worry some about them. The students themselves, the undergraduates, uh, many people were getting into six figures of debt prior to the financial crisis. Um, But one of the things that's changed since then is that you can no longer get a private student loan as an undergraduate, right? The federal loans, you max out are roughly 30 grand. Um, People who want more debt than that as an undergraduate have to go to the private loan market. It used to be before 2008, you could do that without a cosigner. Mm. Now you have to have one. So some grown-up has to show up on the scene and sign off to you taking on more than $30,000 or so of undergraduate debt. So I think there's going to be a little bit less of that, at least among the teenagers, Mm. um, going forward. But the thing that I started to think about after writing for years about how to save for college and the ins and outs of 529 plans, we mostly understand how those work now, Um, or how to pay for college, right? How much debt is too much and the various repayment schemes and how all those work. Spilled a lot of ink over that. But what I realized that I was missing and that we all weren't talking about in an aggressive fashion was the question of what to pay for college, because what had happened while everybody was busy worrying about student loans and and 529 plans is that on average, the flagship state university, the rack rate at that school, crossed the $100,000 mark, undiscounted, four years, room and board, in state. 
a hundred grand. Mm. Uh, Rutgers, hundred and thirty-five thousand dollars for four years. And now, you're in, in state. state, and that's in insanity, state, right? Um, the, so, what does that kid do? So, let's just right? talk about that. Well, so so that kid is sort of facing that down, right? But maybe that kid has ambitions. They have stars in their eyes. They are uh, a really good student. They have the ability to get into a selective college, maybe even an Ivy League college, right? Those colleges are now three hundred thousand dollars for four years if you do not get a discount, right? So, and I use that word discount quite uh, specifically and purposefully because back when you and I were going to college, uh, the financial aid you got was based entirely on the basis of financial need, how much money your family had and could afford to pay. There's this whole new system running along a separate rail now um, called merit aid, right, which are discounts according to essentially how good of a student you are and how much you can sort of burnish and buff the brand of the institution that may be willing to accept you, right? So you got $100,000 over here at the state university. You've got $300,000 at the most selective colleges. You've got all sorts of discounting going on for two different reasons behind the scenes. And you've got to make a decision as a family with a teenager who is the apple of your eye, right? How much more am I going to spend? How much more am I willing to spend to reach for this more selective private institution, this out-of-state public university that might cost $200,000, $250,000? When and under what circumstances does it make sense to pay more? And how exactly am I going to measure value here? And it turns out that when you go looking for data in our supposedly data-rich world in 2018 to sort all of this out the way that you would for your car on Consumer Reports or your house on Zillow, you will find basically nothing. This is the biggest financial decision your family will ever make, and we are all making these decisions in the absence of data. And the colleges actually like it that way. Yeah, it's so opaque. It's ridiculous, right? And I remember um, Money Magazine has done a good job of trying to commission that, and they've built this database themselves. But we I, have you ever met Kelly Peeler from Next Gen Vest? Oh, I got to introduce you to her. She's fabulous. She runs a service for kids, which basically helps them navigate the financial aid and college planning process. And one of the things, the drums that she beats is that there's no uniform standard for the way colleges talk about pricing. And they use these terms that are quite interchangeable, like this is an aid, this is a grant, this is a law. And, and it's very mixed up and it's very hard for families who are not steeped in this information to get it. On the most basic of levels, when you go to a college's website to try and figure out how they discount for merit aid, there is no standard for explanation, disclosure. It is all over the map. Much of it is totally and utterly opaque. Uh, you may have no or very little idea of you know whether your kid um, can qualify. And that's in senior year, right? But again, this is one of the biggest financial decisions you will ever make. You've got a plan for it years, decades ahead of time. You have no idea whether your three-year-old is going to qualify for merit aid based on their SAT score. And yet you still have to plan financially for this crazy six-figure expense per child each time, right? So just walking through the front door, it's completely obscure. Then maybe you get in, you get some financial aid offers. But yes, as you say, all of these terms are different. It's impossible to compare them. Some of it's negotiable. It's never clear when or how. Um, it is way more complicated than it should be. The system is a disgrace, and I intend to make it clear to people.
All right. And if you've got some stories that you want to share with Ron Lieber, go to ronlieber.com because you're soliciting some outside input from your readers and listeners. So I just want to end by asking you maybe a question that will marry both of your books, right? So you're the first book you wrote is called The Opposite of Spoiled. Was this your first book or is there one before this? Uh, it was not the first book. Okay. One of the many books you wrote was called The Opposite of Spoiled, A Guide to Teaching Kids About Money. And now you're going to have this forthcoming book, What to Pay for College. I wonder if you wouldn't mind offering me just a generalized opinion why it's so hard for parents to say we can't afford this. It's it's like, you know, you could say we can't afford you to get Prada loafers, honey. I know you love them, but we can't afford that. Or we no. But with education, it seems incredibly difficult. We get calls from people all the time who say, I can't do that. It's my kid. What what is it that you think is going on for a parent in that moment? Sure. This is a big swirl of money and feelings. And on the money side, we have these outsized rack rates. Not everybody, in fact, most people don't pay the rack rate at school. Uh, but these prices are enormous. Um, parents and families have a thousand other swirling priorities. The grownups have their own retirement to worry about. Uh, you know, you want your kid to be well educated, K to 12. You maybe pay more than you want to to get into a town or a neighborhood that has a, a really great public school system, right? It, it's a lot to ask for all, but really like the one or two percent to put aside $100,000 per kid for college, let alone $300,000. Right. So these numbers have grown beyond all measure or our capacity to really save for them or even comprehend them. Right. So that's the money side. And then there's the feeling side. Right. And while nobody writes these rules on a stone tablet anywhere, uh, we all have children and reproduce, presumably uh, with the expectation that we are going to do everything we possibly can to do as much as we can to invest in those kids so that they can become who they are meant to become. And when it comes to this sort of final culmination of all of our parenting after 18 years, where it's time to have them judged by the outside world, by the college admissions industrial complex, we don't want to say to them, Sorry, we we can't we we can't do it. We we don't have enough money. That feels like not just a failure, a parenting failure, but a, a breaking of an implicit promise, right? And so in that moment, and there are tears, and there are visits, and there are negotiations, and you're literally down to the wire with this incredibly important, enormous decision. It is so hard to say to your kid at that moment, "We're not going to do it." Yeah, I think it's it's too much. And that's why I think waiting till that moment is the worst possible thing you could do. Whereas I think that prepping the kid earlier, you know, like just sort of having some generalized conversations, maybe not specific ones, but, you know, sort of ex- having that that open line is very important. I, you know, I have friends and they have uh, four kids and there was just no way they were going to be able to pay for four private university educations. No way. Objectively, no shot. I could have told them that when the kids were all under the age of eight. I knew it. And I think they felt like that would have been a failure on their part. And I feel like that's a terrible burden and it makes me feel relieved to just have dogs. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. So no shame, no blame. Um, And these conversations need to start years before the application process because there is absolutely nothing wrong with saying to your child, 
we are going to be able to stake you to a couple years of community college and living at home, and we're going to do everything we can to help you get transferred into the very best state university that exists in our state or one nearby that costs the same or a private college that discounts $25,000 a year will cost to go to the state university. We're going to support you in that. We're going to save to that. But that's all we're going to be able to do. No one should feel badly about that. And yet all sorts of people talk themselves into it. And we're in a generation now where a whole bunch of people who were able to go to expensive private colleges have now grown up into parents um, who have not been able to or been willing to save enough for their own kids to have what they had. And the guilt around that is just really screwing with people's heads. It's hard. I think that that's a great point. I think that the idea that, hey, look, my parents did it for me and my dad or mom didn't have the same household income that we do, even if I discounted it for generalized inflation and the world has changed. Uh, Ron Lieber, we started the interview with a very important question, which was, what was your best financial decision? And you said it was reading the Wall Street Journal, which, I mean, whatever. You work for the New York Times now. It's a paper of record. I know it's nice that you gave that little compliment out. What was the worst financial decision you've made? So answering that question can feel like I'm you know, sort of tooting my own horn about the fact that I haven't really blown it in a horrible way. You don't have to blow it in a horrible way, just to blow it. So, I, you know, I'd, I'd say the, the one area where I feel regret, well, let me give you two. Um, so I bought an apartment in Brooklyn right at the beginning of the Brooklyn real estate boom. And I had a pretty good hunch that I was going to do all right with that. Mm -hmm. I did way better than I expected. And so I wish that I had been aggressive and borrowed money and borrowed more money and maybe bought another apartment or or maybe even two. Um, I I totally can. I can relate to that. I totally can get that. I get that. Or or if 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 I had been more aggressive with the size of that first purchase and stretched a little more or if my wife and I had been even more aggressive with the second purchase when we moved up, you know, our net worth would be hundreds of thousands of dollars more than it is now. So so that's a that was a missed opportunity. Um, now, here here is a real legitimate mistake that I made, too. Um, and this was the point at which I realized that, you know, even somebody who writes about money for a living needs a financial advisor. Um, when things hit bottom in early 2009 in the stock market, I knew good and well that it was time to rebalance. Um, and I wasn't afraid of it. I knew exactly what I needed to do. Uh, but as I thought about it, I was like, oh, this is going to be, you know, an hour and a half on Vanguard's website and they don't have one button rebalancing. And when am I going to make time for this? And I have a toddler and I like doing other things. And I, I just never got it done. And a couple of years later, I went back and calculated. Oh, ow. Yeah. It, it, I mean, our retirement accounts would be higher by uh, by by more than $100,000 right now if I had just if I had just taken that hour and a half. Take the hour and a half. It's not even an hour and a half now. Now it's 18 seconds. Now it's much easier. It's amazing. It probably wouldn't have been an hour and a half back then either. I mean, Vanguard's website is not great, but I probably could have gotten done in 20 minutes. Uh, Ron Lieber, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you so much to Ron Lieber. Go check out the Your Money column at the New York Times and his book, which is The Opposite of Spoiled. Don't forget, every Tuesday and Thursday, we drop new episodes of Better Off. The easiest way to get the show is to subscribe. You can do that anywhere you get your podcasts. Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, 
or go to jillonmoney.com. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is the best executive producer ever. We are distributed by Cadence 13, and we are sponsored by Betterment. Talk to you next week.